This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation. You can actually see what she's up to on her Instagram feed at Libby Snymer. She's having a good time. Thank you for joining me today. Ahead of tomorrow's two-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic, first declared by the World Health Organization on March 11th, 2020, the pandemic has forever changed us as individuals and as a society. And of course, the losses are staggering. In Canada alone, there have been more than 37,000 COVID-related deaths, with the tragedies felt most prominently in long-term care. And two years later, since the beginning of the pandemic, the vast majority of eligible Canadians have at least been double vaccinated against COVID, with most of those people having received a third shot booster. Fourth shots have also been given to nursing home residents and people considered immunocompromised. The pandemic is not over yet, but life is quickly going back to normal. Here in Ontario, most indoor masking mandates will be lifted a week from Monday. Joining us to discuss where we have been and where we're going, Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table, and Dr. Barry Pecus, York Region's Medical Officer of Health. Hello to you both. Dr. Uni, you and I have had many conversations over the past two years. What are your thoughts as we hit this milestone anniversary? I think it's important, you know, not to forget how we started this. We all tend to forget, you know, how uh, challenging this actually was at the beginning and how far we actually went. And we learned a tremendous amount. A, this virus is extremely capable of uh, evolving. So it's really evolution in real time that we're seeing. But we also had surprising successes, you know, with uh, with our uh, vaccines and with the treatments that are forthcoming now. And we learned how to deal with it. We now have, you know, a much refined toolbox that we can use also in the future. So we made it very far. And, you know, what really uh, pains me a bit when I uh, keep hearing people, you know, uh, just a few weeks ago, we're back to square one. It's Groundhog Day, etc. All of that is not true. We made it tremendously far. We just need to keep going. You know, the virus doesn't care whether we're tired or not. We can't pretend we're out of the pandemic yet, but we made it far and we will probably have quite a good time now during the next few months. Oh, that's nice to hear. Uh, Dr. Pecus, uh, your thoughts on the two-year anniversary? You know, I'm similarly optimistic. Uh, Certainly, I remember the one-year anniversary and and preparing for a couple of interviews at that time and and thinking what the lessons learned were at that point. Um, And they really are very much the same as now. One of the lessons learned is we we don't tend to learn lessons from pandemics um, and, and, you know, bolstering our public health system and our health care system. But I think in the past year, you know, over the second year of the pandemic, uh, certainly, we have seen just this tremendous uh, evolution. And with the vaccines, we, we're in a very, very different place. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not enthusiastic about talking about getting back to normal, but getting back to a new normal. And I think the summer is going to be an optimistic time. I'm a little bit uh, hesitant about the fall and, and a little bit worried, but I, I'm very much looking forward to the spring and summer. Dr. Uni, Dr. Pecos brings up a good point. You know, when we were acknowledging the first anniversary, the vast majority of us had yet to receive our first COVID vaccination. So when you think about that year over year, this was the year of the vaccine. And then at the very end, uh, Omicron. Yeah, absolutely. So what we need to be aware of, you know, we the first success we had with immunity was after our first dose rollout, we crushed alpha, no? And we did that entirely just with vaccine-induced immunity. Now we are at the point where we are uh, stepwisely loosening our restrictions, and we do that based on the protection offered by vaccines on one hand and 
um, infection. On the other hand, you know, with probably roughly 4 million people in Ontario having been uh, infected with Omicron since December the 1st. So it's the first time since the beginning of the pandemic where we just have, you know, this wall of immunity built up crushing the virus relatively well, even so we're not out of the woods yet. Therefore, you know, the mask lifting worries me a bit right now. But we're doing that well because of a combination of vaccines and infection. That's for the first time that we're doing that. And that's, you know, a change in quality and the change of the face of the pandemic. Well, and since you brought that up about removing the masks uh, and just during our news there, Bob Comsick had a report uh, from the United Kingdom that, Week over week, older adults, there has been a 46% increase in the number of COVID cases. And some of that is thought to be because of more socializing and removing of masks. So, Dr. Pekis, um, are we bracing for for going backwards, I guess, with the mask removal? Uh, I think there's no question that there's going to be increased transmission as we remove the mask. Um, I, I'm just hopeful, as, as Dr. Uni noted, that we have enough population-based immunity that we're not going to see a dramatic increase. And, I, and I'm fairly confident that we will. I think we shouldn't. We, sh- we can take off the mask in some situations, but certainly what I'm advising in York Region is strongly encouraging people, certainly in schools and in other you know close contact settings and crowds and pearly ventilated areas, to continue wearing a mask and, and certainly to have one in your pocket. I think in this phase of the pandemic, we really need to be focusing on kindness and consideration, because there are going to be a lot of people who are enthusiastic about this, but also a lot of people who are very concerned. And if you keep that mask in your pocket and you can put it on in order to allay other people's concerns or when it's appropriate in certain situations, I think we're not going to see, uh, hopefully, what they saw in the UK and in other places, I mean, including the US, where you know, they've had much uh, less consistent masking than we have. Well, and part of the reason, I guess, for this increase as well as waning efficacy of the third shot boosters, uh, that same dynamic will be happening here in short order, Dr. Uni, because many people in the 50, 55 plus age range are coming up on three months, 84 days since they had their boosters. Yeah, look, what we need to be aware of is it's expected for a virus that is able to uh, evade the immune system that the protection against infections will decrease over time. Why? Our body will not be able to hold the high uh, antibody levels, you know, that we see immediately after a booster shot, for example, over time. Because we're accumulating in our life so many infections, imagine if it just has antibody levels really high that neutralize the vi- uh, viruses. Uh, all the time, we basically wouldn't be able to live anymore because we just would be full of antibodies. So it's impossible. But what what is really clear is, you know, that so far we haven't seen, and this makes perfect sense from an evolutionary perspective, we haven't seen the virus evade um, the cellular immunity. And this is important, meaning the more exposure we will have with this virus through vaccines or infections or a combination of the two, the stronger and more mature our cellular immunity gets and the more we should be protected against uh, serious outcomes. That is important because that's the part which is relatively safe to assume. We as hosts, we get fitter, better trained to deal with the virus. What is important also to notice is there is no guarantee that the virus in in itself will get milder over time. That's a myth. You know, that's just people who don't understand evolution, who suggest these sorts of things. We don't know what the virus will do. That Omicron was milder this time in terms of, you know, less serious outcomes or a lower risk of serious outcomes. That was just on block. By the way, if you have a question for Dr. Uni or Dr. Pecos, our phone lines are open, 416-360-0740 or toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Pecos, um, we're not hearing anything about fourth shots for the regular population. We know that they were offered to, they were given to nursing home residents earlier in 2022 as as well as the immunocompromised, are we going to start hearing anything about fourth shots? I don't think so in the short term, but certainly, you know, over the next several months and into the fall, it, it's certainly a possibility. You know, with with uh, with COVID, our our um, uh, our crystal ball is a little bit foggy, <laughs> so we can see, you know, maybe the next three to four months. But 
um, not beyond that. I think it's very appropriate to have that fourth dose for immunocompromised and vulnerable people because those are the people we are still seeing who are, you know, really affected. And that's really why, you know, masking in public when those people are around us is, is going to continue to be important. That's why we continue to have masking in, in mass transit or one of the many reasons. So it's certainly a possibility. Um, I would hope people will be open to it at that time, but really too early to say. Dr. Uni, what about you? What, what uh, is going around the science table? What is being discussed in terms of fourth shots for the general public? Right now, we don't need fourth shots for the general public. It's uh, exactly just uh, as, uh, as described before. We needed that in specific situations where there's a high extent of vulnerability. What we need to be aware of is, you know, when we now move into the, the next phase of this pandemic, there are two possibilities coming. One is... We're uh, lucky, and the next wave of infections will only be seen seasonally, meaning late autumn. You know, that's then like behaving a little bit like an influenza wave of infections, but given exposition, many more people will get infected. And even if it now then will have, in those who are partially immune, the same sort of severity as influenza, since more people will get infected, we would still tend to be overwhelmed with our healthcare system. So what's the conclusion? The conclusion is that it's extremely likely that we need to have a mass vaccine rollout again in autumn, late autumn. It needs to be timely, you know, not too early, otherwise we'll be waning again, so that we just are able to control, you know, the wave to a certain extent and make sure that it's not too high, that we see in a way a bit the similar situation that we saw this year with Omicron. With these 7 million third doses that we have achieved so far, we helped to uh, control the pandemic. So something similar like that. Right. But this is really this short-term protection then against infection, and we just need to be aware of this will wane again over time unless we have a fundamentally different vaccine. This could in the future then make a difference. This is helpful information because people are starting to wonder about, will I need another needle now that it's been more than three months since I had my booster? You know, for Not now. Not, not now. Okay, so we're talking about, I know we normally start hearing about the annual flu shot the beginning of October. So uh, you said late autumn, I guess that's sort of it's yeah. same sort of time frame. It will probably be a bit late, you know, right now we really, we probably will be okay, but this will probably go longer and longer over time if we're a bit lucky for three to four months. So when you think about that, um, we might start to struggle end of November, beginning of December or so. So we would like to have a swift vaccine rollout during November, for example. Okay. And the point is, we can't just have started, oh, we do it slow and, you know, we take three to four months to roll this out. That's not the way to go because of the seasonality element. And of course, there's another possibility. There could be a new variant. We're not, you know, out of the woods. And if there's a new variant, we could also see, you know, a summer wave, for example. Let's hope it's not the case and that we really can enjoy ourselves. All right. Let's go to the phones. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Peter Uni is joining us, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table, and Dr. Barry Pecos, York Region's Medical Officer of Health, along with Jane for Libby. Let's go to Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis. Go ahead. Thank you for taking my call. And uh, Dr. Uni partially answered my question, and I was picking up on your news report about the um, situation in the U.K. with the older population, uh, the, the sizable increase. So for the 70-plus group, when might we expect the fourth shot is my question. Dr. Cool. Uni, go ahead. Okay. So I go first. Um, look, I, I believe we're in a completely different situation than the UK, and I'd rather, you know, keep it that way. Meaning, first of all, our force of infection is much lower, meaning we have a lot less infections per day per population than the UK. And the other part is, I hope, you know, as a society, we have understood it makes sense not to pretend the pandemic is over and uh, to basically take it slow. Meaning, you know, that... That's also what the polls say. After the 21st of March, if we as a society not, don't just throw away the masks and say, yeah, okay, we continue to protect each other, we take it slow, 
Some people might drop it, but not that many. We don't increase our contacts that much, and we just make it safely into spring. This will all make things much easier, no? I believe that, you know, having been to the UK a few months ago, that this is a completely different behavior of the population. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, the, the UK colleagues are excellent in terms of science. But how this then was translated into, you know, a pandemic policy making actually during the pandemic was just abysmal, to be honest. Okay. So I think we're in different shoes. And therefore, if we're a bit careful and, you, you know, we protect ourselves just a bit more, I wouldn't go, you know, if I were, even in my age, I'm 54, huh? I won't go yet to a restaurant indoor to have the, uh, a dinner before I don't see, you know, the wastewater really go down completely uh, because it's just too early. And if you're a bit vulnerable, you know, you just need to be aware of, you can still get it. You know, our daughter, she's uh, 16 in Switzerland in boarding school. She just got it. She still gets actually quite ill right now. She you know, did, she eh? a few days. Yeah. yeah. She just, she just uh, yesterday she reported back that she has a positive rapid test. Okay. And she actually was knocked out now for two days, actually quite a lot. And she had, you know, two doses uh, as uh, she would get, you know, as a 16-year-old. And here you are. That's the reality. And we just need to be aware of that. Oh, Dr. Uni, thank you for telling us that. You must be worried. She, I think she's okay. She will yeah, be. Good. She's uh, stubborn and she's, uh, she will make that. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. Uh, Dr. Pecos, would you like to add to that, uh, Dennis's question about uh, boosters for people 70 plus? So, you know, I, I think I agree with, uh, with Dr. Uni that uh, while we, we learn from different jurisdictions, we, we learn just as much about what not to do as what we should be doing, and, and we appreciate the differences. And, and I'm really proud of, of what we've done in Ontario and and our response overall, um, both because of what our public health and healthcare uh, systems have done, but really what people have done. And, and as Dr. Uni pointed out, we've uh, really showed our caring compassion for each other. And, if, and, and it's, it's a matter of seasonality as well. You know, with the, with the UK opening up sooner, with a, a lot more transmission going on, and us sort of moving gradually into the summer months, it, it may be a little bit different. It's certainly possible that we might need uh, fourth doses for those who are older, uh, but for now, I- I'm confident that we're in a good place. Anniversaries are always a time of reflection. So, you know, j- let's get personal here for just a moment in terms of the toughest time, if you can reflect back, Dr. Uni, on these last 24 months. What was the most difficult time for you personally uh, during this pandemic? And, and, you know, what do you think was the most difficult time for us as a society as well? Ooh, personally, I mean... You weren't taking very much vacation last summer. I remember that, (laughs) if any. (laughs) Well, look, I think I can tell you a bit, you know, professionally. I mean, two moments come to mind. One moment, um, it wasn't really personal. It was just, it was this this combination. When we were basically, you know, um, seeing the alpha variant coming and we were really uh, very early, very clear what was coming. And um, still, you know, the reactions that would be appropriate were lacking, you know, communication wisely and public health measure wisely. And then we remember what happened, you know, the wrong measures were taken. And that, that was a, a really, you know, difficult moment for me as, as, as was, you know, then also discussed uh, in, in, in public. And then the other moment which was difficult for me was um, when my family started to suffer, you know, this was relatively recently when I was out there warning about, you know, the, that Omicron will be a numbers game and we need to be really careful and we need public health measures. When, I, you know, uh, after, you know, at interview number 60 during four days, uh, I made um, a mistake and uh, told uh, a news anchor, uh, you know, that that uh, that we would need to change our attitude and just uh, use wording that allowed uh, the tabloid press to weaponize um, my statement and take it completely out of context. Mm-hmm. And then we really had a situation where there were so many hate attacks that we actually had to involve the police and I started to be worried for my family. That was a sad moment, you know. But, but uh, I think apart from that, I realized, you know, I also see that now with the, with the um, situation that we're seeing uh, in, in, in Europe and, uh, you know, the war in, in Ukraine, 
I, I consider it with hindsight a tremendous privilege that I was able to use my skill set and help a bit. You know, and yeah. that I was in a different situation there and could do something. And this, uh, with hindsight, this was, the, you know, probably the biggest privilege for me, you know, in my professional life. Dr. Pekis, what about you looking back on the two years? So, you know, it's, there have been a lot of tough times. I certainly agree with Dr. Uni that some of the toughest times have been when we know what we have to do and we, we didn't quite do it. In Ontario, we did eventually do it just a couple of weeks later than we otherwise could have, whether with, with schools or with certain lockdowns, we could have had you know, somewhat better outcomes. Um, I have to say that I was, at, I was an associate medical officer in Peel region during the first phase, uh, the first uh, summer, I guess, the, the, the March to June, and, and working in some of the workplace outbreaks where you know, there, there was no vaccines at all. And it was really life or death situations, if you recall, in the, in the meatpacking plants and Amazon yes. factories. It was just incredibly stressful and, um, you know, managing those outbreaks. And they just kept coming up and kept expanding. It was really a difficult time professionally. Uh, and like Peter Uni as well, being, being in a, a, a somewhat public position uh, that I'm in now, uh, in particular dealing with some of the schools and, and other things, certainly some... Uh, Threats to, to personally and, and family have been a bit challenging. Um, so, you know, all of those things have been remarkable. And, and I think we're in a bit of a better place right now. So I'm very thankful for that. Well, I know I can speak on behalf of Zoomer radio listeners, an older demographic, um, the vast majority of whom have gotten all of their shots and very much appreciate your service to Ontario during this extremely difficult time. Let's go back to the phones, 416-360-0740 or toll free, one 866 740. John in Guelph, you're on the air. Yes, I have a question for the uh, doctors. It's about the dropping of uh, masking. Um, isn't the idea of wearing, if I wear a mask, I'm really protecting you, you're wearing a mask, you're protecting me. So then the advice is being given that, oh, you can choose to wear a mask now, but really, we're, that's not really protecting yourself, though, is it? Dr. Uni? Oh, it is protecting yourself as well. It actually goes both ways. It's relatively safe to assume that, you know, just for, for you, you basically decrease the amount of uh, aerosols. If there is any, any you know, viral uh, material in the air, you decrease the amount of aerosols that you breathe in. If you have a well-fitted mask that is well-filtrating, you know, so it's good to have like something like a KF94, K95, or N95, or if you have a medical mask, one possibility is to avoid gaps. You have a medical mask, and then on top a cloth mask that you have also uh, quite a good filtration. Um, obviously, you benefit also from others wearing masks, and when you then think about it, you know, if you just have, uh, if you're on your own wearing a mask, your protection if everybody else is unmasked is lower than how it used to be before. But it's still mutual, it goes both ways and it still makes a difference for you. So the point really is avoid badly ventilated spaces, especially if they're crowded. And uh, if and I will do that too, you know, if I go out and go, I have to go to a, to a supermarket or so, I will just continue to wear my mask now for the next few weeks or so. And I see this as a gradual you know, evolvement over time, and we'll see how this goes. I would believe that, you know, based on the polls and based on the general attitudes I see among Ontarians, that many others will be the same. Okay, thank you, John, for your call. In the interest of time, I'll go to Ted in Whitby now. Go ahead, Ted. Uh, Yes, Um, one month ago, I had my third dose, and it was the Moderna vaccine. When I arrived, I was told that they were only giving half shots of Moderna to patients under 70, Full shots to patients over 70, I'm 69, uh, whereas patients receiving the Pfizer get the full shot. So I don't know why this is done and whether I have less protection than people who have the full dose of the Pfizer. Could your doctors give me some advice sure. on this? Dr. Pecos, do you want to take that one? Sure. Um, it's understandable that you have questions about that. The, the Moderna uh, vaccine itself is, is a higher, a larger amount of the mRNA in it. So it's actually, you know, does a bit better job overall in protecting people. Um, it, it also caused a little bit more of, of local reactions and, and reactions in general. And that's why um, the booster dose was a, was a smaller dose than the Pfizer. I think you're well protected, though. You know, of course, 
you know, you're 69. If you were one year older, you'd have gotten the full dose. So, you know, that 70 number is somewhat arbitrary, um, but it does give you uh, certainly a measure of protection. So I wouldn't be hesitant or, or worry about that, really. Well, should I have a, uh, the rest of the dose at some point sooner or another dose? Uh, when, you know, if and when we do a, a fourth dose, uh, for people over 70, for example, I'm not sure when your birthday is, then you know, that would be something you consider. But I think the most important piece here, of course, with the vaccine at this point with Omicron is protecting against severe infection, hospitalization or, or death. And I think you're going to be well protected with a booster dose, you know, whether it's the Moderna half dose or the full dose of Pfizer, you're going to be well protected. Ted, thank you for calling in. Uh, and, and, you know, so many of our listeners are really engaged and paying attention to protecting themselves in the best way possible. And, and that's why, you know, almost all of our callers have received their booster doses and want to know when the next shot will be, uh, me included. Um, as we wrap up this segment, we're coming to the end here. Just Final thoughts from both of our doctors on, uh, I guess, your best guidance to us going forward into year three, Dr. Uni. I would not tremendously change what we did before, you know, as individuals. We were, we have this sense of solidarity, of community. We need to continue to, you know, just to help each other. What will become a bit more important in the future is that those of us who are vulnerable start to understand whether they would be eligible in the future also for, uh, you know, the new therapeutics, such as a Paxlovid, for example. So it's important to inform yourselves as well. Right now, everything is about taking it slow. There are steps arbitrarily, you know, set at a specific date, but this doesn't mean we need to fundamentally change our behavior immediately. If you take it slow, if we help people to get their third dose, if you haven't, if they haven't got or perhaps convinced somebody now that there are other non-mRNA vaccines out there as well to get their first dose or so, we will just help, you know, to, to expand the, and deepen the protection that we have as a, as a population and also help each one individually just to be protected in the future. Dr. Pegas. You know, I think it's really focusing on that kindness and consideration piece. And, you know, for many of your listeners who might be older, you know, asking nicely for, you know, people, if you might be getting into an elevator or in a particular situation you feel uncomfortable, you know, asking the person next to you, you'd feel more comfortable if they wore a mask, you know, that sort of thing. And I would hope that, that others listening who might be younger will, will, um, will just do that, will wear masks in any case, for the sake of those who might be more vulnerable. Um, you know, I think we've shown kindness and consideration and solidarity as a society. And as long as we continue doing that, we're, we're going to continue to be in a, an optimistic and a good place. And that is a good place to leave it. Thank you both for your time. Thank Thanks you. Have a good afternoon. Dr. Barry Pekas is York Region's Medical Officer of Health. Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Jane, for Libby, more than two million people have fled Ukraine as refugees of Vladimir Putin's war against their country. Each of these people has a story. Coming up next, we will hear one of them. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns from vacation on Tuesday. We're beginning to hear some of the stories of the people who fled Ukraine and what they've gone through to get out. Katya Savchuk is an American journalist who helped get her 94-year-old grandmother and her disabled father out of the capital of Kiev. Katya is on the line from San Francisco with us now. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jane. Thank you so much for having me. Katya, before we hear the stories, tell us about your grandmother and your dad. A little bit about sure. them so we know who we're yeah. talking about. <laughs> Um, my, my grandmother is uh, 94 years old. Her name is uh, Zoya Simeonovna. Um, she was born in Kharkov in north, um, eastern uh, Ukraine. She survived the Holocaust. Both of her parents were killed. Um, her, her father was killed. Her mom died during that time. Uh, she made it just hiding in, in bomb shelters and, um, also uh, recently survived COVID in her 90s. Wow. Um, so has definitely life. been through a lot. Yeah. Um, my father um, used to work for the government in Ukraine. He's 70. 
Um, and he has a disability um, due to a car accident um, with his eye and his neck, so he's not able to drive. Uh, so, of course, when, uh, you know, news of the invasion hit, I was very worried for them. They live uh, just in a building in central uh, Kiev. And have you lived in Ukraine as well? I was born in Kiev myself, and I emigrated uh, in 1989 as a, a refugee uh, from the Soviet Union uh, um, to San Francisco. I've been back just um, a couple of times, and it's a beautiful city. It is. I've been there as well. Mm-hmm. My husband is Ukrainian-Canadian. Uh, it, oh, I see. Yeah, the heritage is just, uh, there are a lot of Ukrainian-Canadians. It's us being here in Canada, having the, the second largest diaspora of Ukrainians uh, next to Russia, and certainly right. many, many in the U.S. as well. So tell mm-hmm. us about the story. What happened once uh, the war began? Mm-hmm. Well, my dad, um, unfortunately, uh, didn't believe that the invasion would happen like so many others. And so he was caught off guard. They didn't have a lot stocked up. Um, you know, as missiles started, um, falling, you know, gunfire in the streets, explosions, some hitting residential buildings, um, started getting really concerned and checking in on them. Uh, my grandmother wasn't able to make it to a bomb shelter, she can't really walk. You couldn't carry her. So they were just sort of sitting there with the lights off, uh, you know, at night to avoid being, being seen, uh, by the aircraft. Um, he started standing in line four or five hours every day to get, you know, food and medicine and the shelves were getting emptier and emptier. Um, so it was getting, uh, very concerned about them, but he, my dad basically said, I just don't know what to do. I have no idea how we can get out. Um, there, you know, there, we see the images of refugees at the border, just waiting for hours, days, you know, in the freezing cold that are just heartbreaking. Um, And that was difficult for anybody, but just not an option for them at all. Uh, so I ended up going on Twitter, just thinking, what can I do? And just putting it out there that, you know, my grandmother, the Holocaust survivor, they just don't know how to get out. Does anybody have any ideas? You know, my dad can't drive. Um, and I was just amazed um, by the response. Just, uh, you know, I think tens of thousands of people shared the post. I got um, probably over 100 replies and, you know, some coming from big organizations that are helping uh, a lot of a lot of folks and, and others just lots, lots of grassroots groups that have organized. You know, people driving in, just regular volunteers from, you know, Poland, from Germany. There's some, there's a Canadian medic there, I believe, um, just um, taking upon themselves to get people out, especially people who have, you know, disabilities or elderly. Um, so, and, you know, people offering to pay for flights to host them. So it was just an incredible response. The kindness of strangers, right? Yes, it, you know, it's restored my my faith in humanity a little bit in this dark time um, when I had just been, you know, refreshing my the news of, of, of the war itself. So as you get all these offers, uh, what happened after that? Or, uh, you know, uh, offers of assistance or direction or guidance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a, a lot of the options just, just weren't feasible because my grandmother can't get on a bus just in her condition at 94 and uh, just even a regular bus trip is, is very difficult, you know, getting to the train. It was um, a friend's uh, family evacuated. They they stood for 12 hours on the train and, you know, if she couldn't do that. She couldn't even get to the station. So what ended up happening was a German journalist um, that I didn't know just saw who, who's there on the ground in Ukraine, saw the my tweet and said, you know, he was really moved by it. And uh, he knew... Um, Vladimir Klitschko, uh, who's a famous boxer, um, and he, who's also the brother of right. the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko. So they kind of took it upon themselves to, to rescue them. And, um, they, a couple of, uh, people in the territorial defense forces, which is the volunteer army that's now formed, um, kind of in, in normal times, it's like a film producer and a businessman. This is just, you know, now they're all geared up for war. Um, but they volunteered to, to drive them. And uh, actually, a Toyota dealership volunteered a, um, or offered them a, a minivan. Um, they got them and escorted them, you know, with Kalashnikovs and, and guns in hand uh, to the Hungarian 
border and um, then on on to Germany. And there's some there's a people from a German company called the Keller Group, a logistics firm that kind of um, took them the rest of the way over the border. Uh, and it's just been, you know, a, a blessing. I don't think there's there's any other way that, that they could have gotten out. And I'm so, so relieved that they're safe. Um, and I'm also just very aware that it's, you know, a one-off solution that just isn't available to so many people. And I've just been hearing heartbreaking stories from, from others in similar situations as that's, well. That's amazing. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Katya Savchuk. She's an American journalist. She's telling us the story of her 94-year-old grandmother, her disabled father, and how they got out of the capital of Kiev uh, at the beginning of the war, Vladimir Putin's war against uh, Ukraine. Um, tell us, Katya, in terms of actually getting your grandmother out of her out of her home, her apartment, um, how physically did that work out? Was it very difficult? Um, the the men who were escorting them, who are just very, very kind people, as I mentioned, one of them normally is a film producer and is on the city council. The other, I didn't quite understand, he might be a contractor, I believe, but they were just very kind men. And now, you know, like they, everybody... They carried her out, I guess. everything up. Yeah, yeah. so they... They they walked her um, oh. just arm. She was able to walk just being propped up by them. Oh, yeah. nice. And nice. then they they got her in this in this minivan. So in Germany, what is their situation now? They are, as we speak, still on their way to their final destination. They they stopped in Hungary and Budapest um, and for the night, and then they drove. And the journey, you know, along the way, it's it's been pretty hard on my grandmother. It's hours of driving. And um, one point they got a flat tire and it was just due to the kindness of a, a guy who'd, who'd already really closed up shop. You know, they have a curfew in, in Ukraine right now who who was kind enough to fix the tire, started snowing, which made the roads a little more treacherous. So it was quite a journey, but luckily she, I think, surprised everybody by, by just... Um, weathering it um, without complaint. And the only thing she asked for, I, I heard uh, from the people escorting her was she wanted cognac <laughs> because there's at the end, because there's a, a ban on uh, alcohol sales in, in Ukraine right now because of the war and everybody having, have, having guns. Um, so she did, she wanted that at the end of her journey. Um, oh, so they're on the way to a, uh, a hotel in, in Heidelberg um, where a, a donor is, is going to put them up, but but what's next is a big question mark. You know, they they won't have any income, and we don't really know what to do from there. That's the next thing to figure out. Right. What a story. And are you talking with them on the phone, your grandmother and your dad? Yeah, we're just communicating through like online messaging, and they've been completely exhausted, um, understandably. And just you know, I'm I'm so. You know, as exhausting as it's as it's been for them, I you know, a woman wrote to me. Um, her own mother was was, I'm sorry, her grandmother was stuck in a building in where there had been a lot of violence in the last couple of days. She was 84 years old. She was in a building that had been hit by a rocket. She was there with her daughter. They had no electricity. Her phone was dead. Um, and it's just that breaks my heart. I, I tried to connect her with resources, and I actually made a document that's on my Twitter to compiling the things that people shared with me, you know, so that if others are in the same situation, they might be able to find some help. But the, the demand is obviously so great, you know, and not the man, I don't think the mayor is able to reach out and help every single person, even though we're so grateful. Um, so just, you know, the violence itself is heartbreaking and so many people need help right now. Let people know who want to continue to follow the story, um, your handle on Twitter. Sure, it's at Katya Sav, K-A-T-I-A, S as in Sam, A, V as in Victor. Yeah, because the journey continues. Um, I just want to ask you one more question. Uh, as a former resident of Ukraine, uh, as you said, you fled when you were much younger, for, when it was the Soviet Union. What do you make of what is happening in your country? Mm-hmm. It's really impossible to make anything of it because it's a senseless, it's a senseless war. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very often 
in tears, you know, like so many people around the world who are Ukrainian and who aren't Ukrainian, just seeing, you know, hospitals being bombed, women cradling newborns underground or sleeping in a metro, you know, we, we were technically refugees. We were fleeing persecution of, of Jews at the time. You know, now they have a, a Jewish president and, um, it's just, um, terribly sad. And it's, it's clear that the soldiers that are going there, there's lots of videos of prisoners of war online. A lot of them are very young children who were told they were going on training exercises. So it's just a lot of death and destruction and, on on, you know, but both sides and for absolutely no reason. So I just hope the violence ends soon. And I'm very proud of, of, of Ukraine right now. Well, we really appreciate you spending some time with us here on Zoomer Radio in Toronto, Canada. Um, your story was incredible and it was, it was nice to have you share it with us. Thank you so much. American journalist Katya Savchuk. Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And still to come, among other guests, Zoomer media friend and human rights activist Majid Al-Shafi joins us from Eastern Europe with a firsthand look at what's going on. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Zeev is trying his very best to get a hold of Majid Al-Shafi. He is a human rights advocate, founder of One Free World International, currently in Poland en route to Ukraine. It is very difficult uh, because of the war uh, to get in touch with people, especially when you want to get in touch with people. But Majid is there. He is safe. Uh, in the meantime, though, we have another special guest as we continue our discussion about Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Dr. Andriy Zayarnyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, who teaches about Ukraine, the former Soviet Union and nationalism. He has been a guest here on Fight Back as well in the early days of the war, which was only two weeks ago. Doctor, thanks for spending some time. Hi. I think we talked to you uh, the morning after Vladimir Putin launched his uh, military against Ukraine. Um, since that time, I'm sure you're watching in horror, uh, like all the rest of us. What are your thoughts two weeks in? Um, I mean, it's a humanitarian catastrophe, first of all. The largest since World War II in Europe. There is no doubt about it. It's... Um, about terrible suffering Putin and Russian troops inflicted upon Ukrainians. Um, this is war in all its brutality. We were speaking yesterday with uh, Dr. Elliot Tepper around this time in the program, and he was saying that uh, the focus right now, because things have not evolved the way Vladimir Putin thought that they would in the early days, and that is just to beat the people into submission, um, to just bomb the crap out of them effectively. Um, it, 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 this would be strategy number two, obviously. Oh, I agree. Definitely after his military operation essentially failed, the blitzkrieg, the idea that he could conquer Ukraine in two or three days, um, the Russian military turned this into a campaign of terror and destruction targeting Ukraine's civilians. Uh, and I know that the focus of the world is on refugees from Ukraine to other countries. Uh, but you should remember that the number of people internally displaced in Ukraine is much, much greater. It's close to 7 million people who are fleeing from the battle zones leaving their homes, um, losing their livelihood, and going to the safer parts of, of Ukraine. So this is also a campaign of dispossession, of ethnic cleansing. Russia is just forcing Ukrainians off their land. 
What is preventing the West and NATO, uh, you know, understanding all of the issues that Vladimir Putin has with Ukraine trying to become more westernized and a more permanent part of Europe? What is preventing the West from stopping? Is it just the new is it just the nuclear threat? Is that what's stopping the West from from ending this whole thing? Uh, mostly, yes. I think uh, this is the fear of a nuclear war, um, the fear that Putin would escalate this into the Third World War. Um, and yes, the West has no effective strategy of dealing with a nuclear bully, essentially. And you should also remember that, I mean, there are all kinds of nuclear powers. And Russia is different because of the Soviet arsenal and intercontinental ballistic missiles. So in terms of sheer uh, mass of nuclear weapons, Russia is actually power number one. Its nuclear arsenal is greater than America's. Yes. So does the nuclear bully get to keep doing whatever he wants indefinitely? Is that is that what we're facing here? Uh, So far, it worked. I mean, the invasion of Ukraine didn't begin in February 2022. It started in 2014, and the West did react with sanctions, but its effects were negligible. I mean, the Russian economy actually prospered after 2014, and the West usually had business as usual with with Russia. Even so, it was a blatant... Um, aggression, annexation of territories of a sovereign, sovereign country. But Putin did get away with this. So it's emboldened him. And apparently he believed that he would get away with, uh, this all out war against Ukraine too. What does he want ultimately? Does it, do he wants, does he want the Soviet Union as it once was? No, it's not about the Soviet Union. Um, he wants a new edition of the Russian Empire, which would be actually more aggressive, more authoritarian than the Russian Empire of the 19th century, the empire that um, collapsed in, 19, in 1917. And he believes that uh, this empire cannot be built without Ukraine. I mean, if you look at his own text, there is a clear ideological justification for this war. He's denying Ukraine's right to exist. Um, And he believes that only with Ukraine and its resources, the new Russian empire will be possible, the new great Russia. I'm speaking with Dr. Andriy Zaryarnyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg. What is it about Ukraine that Putin covets so much? You know, I uh, actually have family in Ukraine uh, by marriage. My husband, Ukrainian-Canadian, as many of our listeners know, if you... They've been listening along, um, and one of our cousins there is a university professor, and she studies similar disciplines as yourself. And she says that for Russia, Ukraine is always—Russia is like the man, and Ukraine is the woman who who doesn't want anything to do with the man. And yet he still—he wants her back. He wants to have her under his control. Yes, you can use this allegory of an abusive behavior, um, but it's also about Ukraine's Ukraine's resources. I mean, if you look at Russia's history, Russia did become a great power only after they annexed Ukraine and Ukraine became part of the Russian state. So that started in the middle of the 17th century when they obtained part of Ukraine and then in the 18th century. So Ukraine helped Russia to join this club of great powers. And ever since, Russia understood that losing Ukraine, it would also lose the status of a great a great power. Um, there is a great historian of Russia, Dominic Levin, and in his book on World War One, he said that, yes, this was basically Russia's rational um, um, 
in uh, going to World War World War One. It was about Ukraine and whether Ukraine would remain part of the Russian the Russian Empire. But, Doctor, can you be a great power if the people in this territory, uh, the country of Ukraine, if, if they hate you so much? Can you be a great power if your people are not on your side? Uh, that's a problem. Apparently, Putin believed that uh, at least part of uh, Ukrainians would welcome Russian troops. That was his calculation that eventually they would accept it, that, you know, the great Russian state, Russia's population is much larger than Ukraine's. Uh, once they conquer, they would be able to assimilate. Um, but as you see, he miscalculated, right? Ukrainians are actually remarkably united in their resistance um, to this Russian, Russian aggression. To no surprise, really, to anybody around the world who lives in a democracy, right? Uh, but that also explains this campaign of terror uh, Russia unleashed against Ukraine's civilian population. Um, I mean, it's about dispossession. It's about forcing people uh, of their land and uh, just taking territories if they cannot take people or capture their minds. So it's not about, in, in a, at the end of the day, it's about the land. It's not about the people. Well, it's both, it's both for Putin. Um, you know, Ukraine with 40 million would help Russia's declining population. Um, but yeah, it's also about Ukraine's resources as a land. And since the existence of Ukraine as a successful democratic alternative to the Russian authoritarianism. Um, if you look at the kind of soft war, hybrid war against Ukraine that Putin waged for many years, um, the main goal was to prove that Ukraine is essentially a failed state, that, you know, democratic Ukraine cannot be successful, cannot be prosperous, um, while authoritarian Russia is doing pretty pretty well, and this is a problem with the West that uh, you know buying Russian fossil fuels and uh, making deals with Russian oligarchs. They actually helped to sustain this illusion of authoritarian prosperity that uh, Putin was projecting. We've run out of time, but I hope you'll come back and, and talk with us again. A very, very interesting perspective. And obviously, you have extensive knowledge of the history of this part of the world. Uh, doctor, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Dr. Andriy Zayarnyuk is professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, teaches about Ukraine, the former Soviet Union, nationalism, a scholarly gentleman to be sure. Well, thank you very much once again for spending the hour with me. Tomorrow, Bob Comsick will be here to take your calls on Free For All Friday, and I hope you'll join me on the weekend for the best of Fight Back, Saturday and Sunday at 12.30. Be well. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.